chief is on the scene. He's got his hands on the great controls, and he moves the throttle forward. Very good. That was really nice, Joe. That was fantastic. Yes, sir. I, I, you know, uh, before we get started here, Joe, would you please uh, start that machine over there? I just want to do a little thing here. Do you mind? Please, yes. Bring it up big. Hit it hard. Critical evaluation. You said it was all right? Uh, that's an Austrian uh, juice herb. <laughs> it is. It's Austrian. And uh, they make some of the best juice herbs in the world today, in case you're interested. I'm sure you are, of course, naturally, being a person interested in the arts, uh, that uh, they do make some of the best. Now, I have become very pro juice herb, actually. Uh, I'm not really pro juice harp. I always have been, but. Uh, my, let's put it this way, identity as an artist has grown uh, in the last few weeks, ever since I was approached by one of the top Nashville musicians to play in his group. Yeah, as a professional Jews harp player, therefore my career would have gone completely in a circle and I would have been right back where I started. <laughs> you know the first job I ever had, actually, professionally, Joe, uh, in uh, showbiz? was playing the Jews harp and the string bass and singing stuff like the Red River Valley. Yeah, with a group called Chuck Acre and his Colorado Cowhands. And uh, I, uh, I worked at it for some time. You know, I was about 15 or 16 years old, passing for 19, working in tough Calumet City, Illinois bars. Yeah, places called the Riptide. Yeah, but <laughs> what was that, a tough joint? And uh, once you have worked uh, as a, you know, behind-the-scenes worker in a real tough joint, you know a lot about life that you don't want to know. You know, I'm not surprised at anything. People are constantly being surprised at things like Watergate and chicanery in the city halls, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Once you've worked in, in a real tough joint, I mean, like, you know, every night of the week for maybe six, seven months, you've pretty well seen it. 
mean, you really have, I'm telling you. In fact, I remember I remember one little uh, little side issue along that line. You know, you talk about uh, uh, most people have uh, a fairly abstract idea of uh, corruption and uh, man's corruptibility, which, are, after all, are the same thing. Not really, because you know a lot of people tend to think that, uh, that there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the good people and the bad people. And naturally, of course, there's no question about which department of the people them they're in. There's no question about that. Uh, I have never heard anybody refer to himself, well, you know, my problem began at birth. I was born one of the bad people, and I, I can't do anything about it. I'm just bad. No way. That would be an uncommon bit of candor. And if it actually was said, if some guy actually said that, people wouldn't believe him. They'd say, gee, that was a wonderful thing uh, uh, Big Gus said on the stand the other day. Wasn't that great? Uh, I wish he'd quit fooling around and start telling the truth. Of course, he's been telling the truth. No one would buy it. Uh, in fact, there's an old, there's an old, uh, an old canard. You know what is it like a canard? You know, like look before you leap, that kind of stuff. That says that people will remember a lie ten years or better. They will forget the truth in less than ten minutes. <laughs> There's some truth to that, <laughs> but uh, they probably won't even hear it. That's a, you know, that's a, that's the worst part of it. So, nevertheless, uh, I remember on a, on a one night, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm playing in this band in this tough, in this tough bar, and it was a, it was a C and W band naturally. Chuck Akery and his Colorado Cowhands would hardly be a rock group, and uh, we were, you know, we were, we were real, real basic C and W. And uh, I'm talking about the Texas sound, which is not the same as the Nashville sound or the Memphis sound or the Bakersfield, California sound. This is the real Texas sound. You know, it is, uh, this, is a, this is more like the Hank Williams sound, you know. So we're working uh, in this real tough bar. I'm about 15, 16, see, and I, I, I'm playing the Jews harp every night, playing the bass. And uh, one night, it was like on a Wednesday, the bar is kind of... Kind of uh, kind of a soft business tonight. There's not a big crowd or anything in there, see? So the guy who ran his joint, real tough guy, I mean, he really, he was genuinely a tough guy. He came right out of a, came right out of one of these movies, you see, with, you know, Richard Widmark movies, one of these little cheesy gangster movies that you see that in grainy black and white comes out about three o'clock in the morning. It's called something like The Scream in the Night, starring Richard Widmark. And, uh, and he's a hard-hitting city detective. You've seen those movies, millions of them, you know. Co-starring somebody like uh, oh, uh, Ellen Drew, uh, you know the girl, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, all these people are. are uh, there's a certain group of people playing these hard-bitten, these grainy black and white gangster films, and uh, generally Richard Widmark finds himself sometime during the picture going into this real tough bar. They, a lot of action in those bad movies happens in bars. And, and, you know, there's a reason for this, because this is true. <laughs> it's not inventing it, man. I, I should tell you stories about things I've seen at bars when I was working in them, that, you know, as a kid. Well, we, you know, when I was doing the show down at the Limelight down in the village, you know, now that was a bar. They had a big bar there. And um, and I used to do the show every Saturday night there for a couple of years. And and uh, when you when you work in a bar like that, when you're actually on, on the backstage scene, and you get to know the whole scene, you see all kinds of stuff that people outside in the front there would hardly ever suspect. Uh, for example, one night, 
uh, just just typical little scenes. Some of them are funny, some of them aren't. But one of the funny ones one night was uh, in the middle of the show. See, I'm I'm working away there, and uh, and they had a kitchen, and they served all kinds of stuff there. They served pizza. You remember, Joe? You went down there. They had, they had spaghetti and they served hamburgers and all that stuff. They had a little bitty kitchen. The kitchen was about the size of. You know, your your average uh, double-sized broom closet. You know, about nine guys working in there all at once. And, the, of course, the hot plate was going. You know, they had the oven going and everything. And so, naturally, tempers were quite, uh, let's put it this way, there were plenty of short fuses in there, especially on a Saturday night when there's 12,000 orders coming in. And, uh, and there's three guys trying to cook everything at once. And there's 48 waiters who want everything right now, you know, at this minute. And uh, the door keeps swinging back and forth. And so uh, it was getting pretty tight, right? And it was a hot, really a hot summer night. It was like in mid-July, something like, you know, right, right about this time of the year, you know, really hot. And uh, this guy is leaning over this, uh, this, uh, this great big tub of hot grease. You know those things they make uh, French fries in, right? And they got the big basket with the French fries, and they dip them in there like that, see? And he has been working like a Trojan. I mean, he, the, the guy was he had, like he had 45 arms, like he's one of these Indian gods. You know, <laughs> he's cooking everything. He's got hamburgers going, and he's got pizzas going. And he's got spaghetti going over here, and he's got fish broiling in the oven. And he's got everything going like that. See, he's running around. He's got a hold of the French fries. He's shaking it like this. See, and he hit that moment of uh, explosion, you know, that man, like all atomic creatures, has a moment of what we call fusion. Uh, it's a moment when the atomic reaction begins and it's irreversible, right? Here it is, a Saturday night, everything's going fantastic. Oh, the crowd is packed, they're waiting out on the street, and for some crazy reason, everybody was was hungry. They were buying everything, and and he's in there cooking. He's got hamburgers. He's got orders, and he's got a he's got a clipboard with about four hundred orders on it. See, and he's really getting up tight. And I go back in there, and I said, "Hey, Peter," I said, "Calm down." You know, this is, we had took a five minute break for the news. I come back and said, "Hey, Peter, take it easy, man. We can hear you hollering. <laughs> you can hear him hollering out there in the middle of the in the middle of the uh, the the nightclub. You could hear you could hear this hollering see, in the kitchen all the time." So I says, "Hey, Peter, come on, take it easy, man." He saw oh, he's like he's the, they need they need twenty people back here. I can't. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I got four hundred orders lined up, and I'm cooking as fast as I can. At that point, a really dumb klutz of a waiter comes back. This guy's obviously going as fast as he can go. You know, it's like coming up behind Dave Waddle, you know, the runner. And uh, just as Dave Waddle is about to set a world's record in the 1,500-meter run, you holler at him, what are you, what, what are you fooling around for, Dave? Why don't you run, for God's sakes? You know, <laughs> he's left to kill you. Well, uh, this is exactly what happened. Peter was going full blast, and uh, everything was swinging like uh, like Billy be damned in the back room there. And I, I had just stuck my head back there, which, you know, I, I leave it to Shepard. He's incident prone. Uh, if, if anything's going to happen, I am on the scene, unfortunately. Other people never see anything. I noticed there. there. But I, I had just walked back in the kitchen, and I said, hey, take it easy, Pete. Come on, man. Uh, don't worry about it. Let him wait, you know. And, and I'm just about to leave the kitchen with a with a sandwich. I turn around, I start walking out, and in comes this waiter, this real klutz of a waiter. He comes in, hey Pete, for God's sakes, will you quit goofing off? What am I going to get my What am I going to get my French fries? For God's sakes, there's a pregnant pause. 
with a cry, an inchoate cry of human anguish, true, uh, uh, true uh, pain. He goes, he goes, he turns around and he's got this, <laughs> he's got this basket full of French fries. He must have had about four pounds of French fries in there. You know, he's cooking the French fries. He turns around. He says, "Here are your damn French fries!" And whap! He throws the French fries in the air. And for one brief instant, I see the entire kitchen is filled with French fries. They're bouncing off the walls. They're floating down. It's like a gigantic snowstorm of French fries. And the waiter has is is caught right full in a <laughs> French fry fly. And I quickly ducked out because <laughs> I knew, man, on a Saturday night, I knew it was about to happen. Well, uh, I heard this, you know, luckily it was during the break. A lot of people were all walking around buying drinks and stuff like that, so they didn't hear the action. At this point, uh, the cook and the waiter, uh, it, was, it was an epic battle. It was a, a really, truly epic battle, and it, it wound up out in the alley. And uh, all the while, you know, yelling and hollering, and they're rolling around the ground. Now, forget Saturday night. Forget the 45 orders. See, they're rolling around out there in, in the back there, and out in the alley, that little street that goes back in the line. Like, they're rolling around. And I rush out, saying, here's the guy that's running the place. I says, hurry up. They're fighting in the kitchen. Hurry. He says, my God, I knew it was going to happen someday. And he rushes back. <laughs> and they never came back. The cook and the waiter never, never returned. At which point... Uh, the, the, the manager took over, and he's cooking in the back there, and uh, one of the waiters took over the other guy's station, and we never saw the guys again. Those great moments in, in uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the true battles of men. Now, this is the kind of stuff, because if anybody knows anything about restaurants and stuff, if, you ever, if you've ever worked around uh, bars and restaurants, there is always a smoldering resentment in the kitchen. Always. It's just natural. It's just a smoldering resentment of the cooks uh, for everybody else. I mean, it, I don't know why. What is this? Uh, this is true in the Army. Uh, I've seen 50 cooks working in mess halls. They're always mad. You notice this, Joe? Always mad. I, you didn't notice that. You are a man of uncommon insensitivity. Oh, you were a cook. This is W.O.R. New York. <laughs> oh, it's all madness. It's all madness. Please, Joe, hit the button. You don't have to know a lot about wines to know the time for Dubonnet is before. And there's hardly a soul who knows it's an aperitif. Uh, yes, indeed. Trey Elegant. Uh, are you using too much sugar in your iced tea and iced coffee? Well, here's a suggestion. Get Sweet and Low, the perfect sugar substitute. Sweet and Low is featured at all fine food and drug stores. Sweet and low. Sweet and low. <laughs> hey, listen, to get off the subject of, of bad news in restaurants, I, incidentally, Joe, you're, you're right. Uh, cooks like their job. Yes, they do. But they hate waiters. Now, we're not discussing, uh, we're not discussing whether they like the cook or not. They do like the cook. It's waiters they hate and uh, peripherally customers. Uh, so they uh, so on a on a night when it's really busy in in any kind of a kitchen, you really feel this this tension in the air, man. And uh, I one time saw, and I'll, I won't tell you what place it was. There's another place where I was doing a show from, and uh, I this was a nightclub show. I did. Uh, most people think of me as being on the radio. Well, actually, it's nothing to do with radio. I was in, I was working in a nightclub, doing nightclub work as a comic, and I was working all over the country. And and one night. Uh, I actually saw a guy in a kitchen perform a 
a classical piece of business right out of a comic strip. Now, generally speaking, uh, stuff that you see in comic strips and in movies, you know, comedy movies, just doesn't ever happen in real life. You know, this is just, you know, just a little see. For example, I'll give you an example of what I mean. How many times have you seen cartoons where it's a, b a baseball game, and in the middle of a ball game, you see th there's a cartoon where it shows this guy hollering, Kill the umpire! Now, you've seen that, that, uh, that cliché probably 150,000 times. You've seen it, Jerry, right? I have gone to baseball games. I have played in baseball games. Most of my, I've never, most of my adult life and childhood life, never once did I hear anybody holler, kill the umpire. Never once. Now, if I had heard it once, <laughs> I'd say, well, there's a justification. But it's a, it's a, it's a thing that non-baseball playing or baseball fan cartoonists think happens at ball games. I've never heard it done, ever. Uh, there are several others like that that, uh, that just don't happen. But that's a you know that's a that's a cliche that of uh, of true dimensions. But nevertheless, uh, I did see a thing happen. It was a great moment. Um, two things in in the same restaurant, uh, nightclub. Now, one of the great cliches of nightclub humor that is humor uh, that when whenever a nightclub a, a waiter a waiter whenever a waiter is a waiter in in films like Charlie Chaplin made fifty films it seemed like when he was a waiter right. Uh, Jerry Lewis made films when he was a waiter. He was a waiter. This is a great area of, of film comedy. Uh, what is one of the cliches of that type of film? It's, you see it in every one. In fact, Charlie Chaplin did it a dozen times. Well, come on, think about it. All right, he goes through the swinging door in the kitchen, right, and he's got a great big tray of stuff, Okay. All right, you've seen that a thousand times. I have never yet seen it happen in real life where he goes through the wrong door or the door swings back and hits him and the whole thing. See, uh, and another waiter comes through and the two of them hit, boom, you know, like that, and uh, the stuff goes up. Except one time I really saw it happen. <laughs> I really, honest to God, saw it happen. And I couldn't believe that it was actually happening when I saw it because this is the kind of thing you do see in cartoons. They had two doors on this 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 kitchen they, and they were they were swinging doors and they were you know joining it was like two doors one swung in one the other one swung out right and uh it said on the door they had a little plate on each door one had in the other had out correct so i am <laughs> i'm doing my show in the middle of this bit and by the way this particular place was on uh on madison avenue very elegant place oh one of the most elegant uh after-hour supper clubs uh, in the city at the time. It was in the Hotel Duane. Uh, it was a, a room called Down in the Depths, really elegant, uh, you know, kind of place with a $20 uh, minimum cover charge, that kind of stuff, see, with purple velvet walls and the whole bit. So here I am on the stage doing this thing, and uh, it was in a review for a lot of people in this little show. It was a review. We had songs and dances and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, a real chic review. And there I'm doing my little bit. And, in fact, it's a dramatic scene that I'm playing with an actress. It's a humorous type scene. I'm sitting at, at, a, at what is a mock-up coffee bar, a coffee table, like in a, in a uh, you know, like in a, in a place where you grab a coffee and donuts in the morning. And I'm sitting there. We're having this sensitive scene. And I said to her, 
Here's the way the line went. I still remember the bit. It's a famous bit. It had been done in several New Faces shows, too, incidentally. And uh, I come in. I walk in. And I sit down. I'm the only guy in the, uh, in the uh, coffee shop, right, except for the guy behind the counter. And his back is to the audience. My face, my face is to the audience. And between the two of us is the counter. I come in, sit down. I look up at the menu, which is not uh, there. It's an imaginary menu. I look up at the menu, see. And uh, he comes over with his rag, and he's wiping up the table, and he's straightening up uh, dishes and uh, napkins and stuff. He says, what'll it be? I said, oh, I think I'll just have coffee this morning. He says, you want it the black, or do you want it uh, with cream? I said, uh, bring it black, okay? He said, all right. He turns around, and he, you know, draws the coffee, although he doesn't really draw coffee. He just shh, makes it look like it. turns around and puts a cup down in front of me. At which point, I pick up the cup, and it's really hot, see, so I've got it in both hands, and, and I take a sip of it, and I put it down. I'm looking out at the audience, absolutely blank face, no expression. Can you see the scene? I'm looking out at the audience, and I'm dressed like your typical Madison Avenue executive. I got this very well-cut, uh, elegant uh, Brooks Brother-type suit and a uh, very, very elegant shirt. And, and I look like a guy who's just about to go into his elegant job at the agency in the morning, and I'm stopping for the coffee. And he's, he's uh, the, the counterman's walking around, cleaning up the place, and I'm sipping my coffee. And all of a sudden, the girl walks in and sits down right next to me. Now, of all the seats, there's 14 seats empty. She sits right, right next to me. And I, I, uh, I'm looking out at the audience, and I'm drinking my coffee. And uh, the audience notices that this girl, I don't know why I'm telling you this bit, but this is, the kind of <laughs> this is the kind of stuff they do in these clubs, these elegant clubs. This girl, who is a beautiful blonde, a very tense, elegant-looking blonde, she, uh, she's looking at me out of the corner of her eyes like this, Joe. See, she just keeps looking like that, see. And looking out at the audience. And I'm not even aware of this. I'm just sitting there and you know, looking out at the audience. And um, she's got a book with her, which she puts on the counter. And the counterman comes over and says, what will it be, miss? She says, in a very tense voice, I'll have coffee. Coffee, please. And he says, oh, sure, fine. Uh, do you want it uh, with sugar or do you, do you want it uh, black or do you want it with cream? She says, I'll have it black, please. Yes, fine. And he goes over, he draws the coffee, he puts it in front of her. And she keeps looking at me out of the corner of her eye all the time. And uh, I, you know, sitting there, you know how you get aware of somebody looking at you? I'm, I'm looking out at the audience. All of a sudden, I, I cause a little look on my face, you know, like, what the hell, you know, is going on here? Somebody's <laughs> so I glance out of the corner of my eye, and we have timed this thing so that just as she finishes looking at me and looks back out at the audience, I look over and I don't see anything. She's looking out at the audience now, see? I look at her. Boy, at that point, I see she is a fantastic chick. I look. I look back out at the audience and I'm sipping the coffee. And she keeps looking again at me. And I'm getting a little uncomfortable. I'm aware of somebody looking. And all the while, it's a silent scene. It's all done with eyes, movement. Nothing is said. And then, finally, she says, it would never work. It would never work. And I look at her, and I said, excuse me? Uh, excuse me, are you talking to me? Excuse me. <laughs> and she says, it would never work. 
excuse me, what, what do you mean it would never work? Are you talking to me, miss? And she says, you know very well. And she looks me right in the eye. You know very well, deep down inside of you, that it would never work. I said, excuse me, I mean, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, with it here, I guess, or something this morning. What would never work? There's a long pregnant pause. And now she's very up. You can see she's really uptight. She says, you know very well. So I know very well. What do you mean? Uh, what would never work? And she looks him right in the eye this time. She said, us. You and me. It would never work, and you know it. At that point, he looks straight out at the audience with a blank look. It's not this what the hell's going on here? And then his expression changes slightly, and he goes like this. How do you know it wouldn't work? And she turns to him and says, I know it wouldn't work. I know it, and you know it. It's, well, wait a minute now. I, I'm not, the, what, what do you mean? Uh, there's nothing wrong with me, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, what, 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 what's wrong with me? What do you mean it would never work? She turns to him and she said, I don't want to discuss it. I don't want to discuss it. At this point now, he's getting sucked into it. He said, what do you mean I don't want to discuss it? Now, come on now. You just made a leading statement. You said it wouldn't work. Now, I'm, 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 I'm an honest person. I haven't, uh, I haven't given anybody any business. And, uh, why, why do you say that? And she says, you know it wouldn't work, and you know why it wouldn't work. He says, well, tell me, why? Why wouldn't it work? And she says, she starts to cry every time. I do it. You, can't, you can't talk to me ever without raising your voice. We can't have a simple conversation without us going through this kind of thing. He says, wait a minute. Now, look, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry for what, for everything, but... I just think we can make it work. He's slowly being sucked into it. And with that, the counterman walks over and he says, Are you giving her trouble, buddy? He says, No, I'm not giving her trouble. She says, You stay out of this. She says to the counterman, You stay out of this. It's an argument between the two of us. And you have nothing to do with it. Long pregnant silence. And we're both staring out at the audience, and she is drinking distractedly from her coffee. And he is now getting very uptight. He's, he's, he's deep in this argument. And he turns to her and he says, listen. Listen, I, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And she says, you always say you're sorry. Every time this happens, you say you're sorry. He says, what can I say other than I'm sorry? She says, well... I've had enough of this. I'm never going to listen to you again. And he's been deeply sucked into this thing. And at that point, he looks out at the audience with a long, pregnant look. Well, I want to tell you, the audience, there was, there was a, it was a Saturday night. There was about 300 people. The place was packed. And they were really involved. There was dead silence. You could have heard a pin drop. Well, I am looking straight back. Now, instead of looking at the audience, remember... I'm cheating a bit because this is, a, after all, this is a stage production. And I'm looking over the head of the audience, right at the door of the kitchen. The two doors are marked in and out, right? 
I see a waiter walking with a gigantic tray. He has one of these enormous stainless steel trays, about eight feet in diameter, piled high with glasses. He's got glasses. He's got plates. He's got root beer mugs. He's got everything there. He's got him up, and he's walking like mad directly towards the outdoor. I said, no, he's going right towards the outdoor. Remember, there's two doors, in and out. The outdoor meant you come out of that door to go into the kitchen. You come out of the kitchen into the, into the restaurant. The indoor meant you go into the kitchen. He is going towards the outdoor while I'm watching this thing. And I hear the, wait, the, the, the actress next to me saying, it's been like this every time you know it. And that was my cue to put my head down and look at my coffee cup in contrition. See, we're having an imaginary battle. In fact, this is a very, very fine piece of dramatic writing. It, the, the piece, I will explain to you, in two minutes, covered an entire relationship between hu two human beings, like courtship, uh, consummation, breakup, and final disillusionment and ultimate borderline suicide, all in two minutes. And, and it was a very dramatic scene. It had to be played absolutely correctly. At that point, I cannot bring my eyes to look down at my coffee cup because I see that waiter with that giant thing going right for the outdoor. She said to me the line again. She repeated it. She thought I missed my cue. She said, you know, it's been like this every time. And I am just about ready to say, all right, if you want it that way, I won't see you again, which was my next line. I open my mouth, and I see it happen. A waiter comes out of the outdoor, running like hell with a gigantic tray, <laughs> covered high with hot dogs, pizzas, uh, shad roll, you name it, all kinds of weird and exotic stuff. And he comes out, running like hell. The other guy hits him, running out, both of them at one Boom! It was a head-on collision. And I saw the two trays go up in the air. This one waiter was caught so completely off guard that his feet went right out from under him and he landed right on his bottom, just the way in a, you see in a Charlie Chaplin movie. And it was a classic thing. They were both wearing tuxedos. And, 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 and the, the spaghetti is coming down on this guy's head. <laughs> and everything is flying. Well, at that point, it was a fantastic scene. Everybody in the audience just broke up. They wild. See, they had never seen the show before. Remember that. There was a wild applause. The place broke up on a wild applause, and I hear the director behind, this, behind the, the curtain. He says, bring the curtain down. Lights, quick. That's a fantastic payoff line. At that, boom, 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 the lights go out, and the place rocked. They thought that was fantastic. Well, the next week, roughly three days go by. What a night that was. Three days go by, and there's a review in the New Yorker magazine. It just so happened that night the New Yorker reviewer was in the audience and saw this scene, and he, he says one of the most beautifully contrived side-splitting comedy bits is performed by Gene Shepard and Dorothy Love and two unnamed waiters. It says this beautiful bit, they thought it was a set bit. Fantastic moment. Well, these, these, uh, these are the incidents, not like that one night, 
one night down at the Limelight. I'll tell you another scene happened one night if you want to hear other things that happened behind stage in nightclubs. Again, I'm on stage. If you remember rightly, this was a big room filled with people. You remember, Joan, off to the left as you, as, as you face, well, as you face the stage to your right, to the audience's right, was the kitchen, which was right alongside the wall. And uh, the place was packed with tables. You couldn't get, uh, I mean, you couldn't get a table for two mice in there, you know. It was really packed. And, uh, and I'm up there, hot. It was a hot night, and we were working away there. The show was about, uh, oh, 45 minutes into, into action. The place is roaring. The people are cheering, and it's hot. And the waiters are running back and forth. And, and uh, there was off to my left, right near the, at my left, that would be the audience's right, there was a phone booth in the corner right next to the kitchen, right by the kitchen. Yes. <clears throat> you might not have seen it, Joe, because it was unlit during the, kept it unlit, and they usually didn't let anybody use it during the shows. It was just quietly sitting back. It was a pay phone, you know. And so uh, I, I'm up there doing my bit, and I'm looking around. I'm up on the stage. See, I can see the whole room, remember. This is, a, this is a, an advantage of being on the stage, and I can see everything that's going on down there. And and uh, I see a drunk, a real drunk, just like that guy. What was the name of that? I'll ask you a bit of trivia. Who was the famous actor who became famous playing nothing but drunks in the movies? He played nothing but drunks. What was his name? He was always seen. He always used to do a little cameo role. Uh, Cary Grant would come out of uh, Carol Lombard's apartment, and there would be this drunk waiting to get into an elevator, you know. And uh, there would be this little bit, and he would not appear again in the film, usually. He was always a drunk. Who was that? He died a couple of years ago. You don't know who that was? Now, come on, you guys. He was a famous, uh, he had a famous bit. He played an absolutely stinko funny drunk. He had a kind of a, yeah, mustache. That's right, Joe. He had a mustache. He looked like a weaselly little guy. He got, and he was always looking uh, like some kind of a visiting fireman from an insurance company who was blotto and stinking. <laughs> and he was, yeah, he had that mustache, little pencil mustache. Exactly. Who was he? Well, anyway, this drunk was almost exactly like him. I mean, well, well, that's what got me. He was a sort of a middle-aged, elegant drunk. And this is the moment of uh, real, real comedy. He was an elegant, middle-aged drunk, and he got up in the audience, and I see him get up, seeing he's swaying, and he's got this elegant look. He's wearing a, a black suit. He looked like probably, you know, a, a Presbyterian minister on his day off is what he looked like, see? Oh, you know, he had silver sideburns, a whole bit, see? And he stands up, and I can see both of his eyeballs are spinning in opposite directions. And he sort of stands there for a second. The wind is swaying him back and forth. And he goes lurching off. I couldn't figure out where the hell he was going because the, the John was in another direction. He goes lurching off what to, to what looked like to me the kitchen. Well, I usually, a waiter would head off a drunk from heading towards the kitchen, invariably. But all the waiters were busy and off in the other end of the room. And somehow, he's lurching through the crowd, you know. And I could see him knocking tables and stuff, and he lurches over. <laughs> and I don't know how he managed it, but he lurched right into the phone booth. He is now in the phone booth. Well, at that point, he, he closed the door on, on the phone booth. Well, now, you know what happens when a door closes in a New York phone booth? What happens? The light goes on, right, okay? So here we are in a dark room. This is a, this is a, a nightclub. The, ro the room has been darkened. All the lights are down. See, and the only lights are on the stage. Well, the minute he got into this phone booth and pulled the door shut, this thing lit up like a Christmas tree. There he is, see, drunkard in a coat. 
And he's he's obviously trying to make a phone call. See, and he's sort of reeling around on the phone booth. And all the while, I'm trying to say, hey, for God's sakes, what are you waiters? Get over here and get that guy out of there. I couldn't get anybody's attention. I'm up there because I'm in the middle of a big comedy bit, and I can't stop, you know, and say, no. so I'm up there doing my thing. And nobody seems to notice him except the audience, and they're all looking. I could see the entire audience is looking over there at this guy because it was such a great scene. And and he's, you know, he's bumping inside of that booth against every wall. He go boom, boom, boom. He did all four walls. And he reaches out in his pocket. He's looking for a dime. He's going to make a phone call. And you hear all this change. Change all over the floor. See? Drunks always do this. At which point he bends over, and now he disappears from view. He is now on the floor of the phone booth looking for his dimes. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can hear tittering going on. See, tittering in the audience see, at that point. And still nobody did anything about it. And, and, and it's, you know, the scene is growing. And I can, you can hear him in there banging around on the floor. It's a metal phone, but you hear clunk, 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 thump, you know, mutters. And uh, you can hear a complaining because remember, he's right by the kitchen door. The kitchen door is about a foot and a half away from him, see? He's off to the left of the door. Well, he he stands up now. He stands up, and he he peers out of the of the phone booth, and his eyeballs are really you can see the light shining on him, and he's drunker than a coat, and he's got this handful of change, and he reaches up and he starts to put money into the phone. Well, everybody can see he has not lifted the receiver up. <laughs> he simply hasn't lifted the receiver. He puts money in. He looks at it. He starts hitting it. Well, you know, everybody want to jump up and say, hey, uh, pick up the receiver, you clot. No. Well, it, it dawned on him then. You could see it just sort of dawning on him. Oh, yeah, I see. Okay. And he takes up the receiver, see. <laughs> Nothing happens. So he puts another dime in. And you hear ding, ding. Then he starts to dial very drunkenly. If you've ever seen a drunk dial a phone number in a phone booth, it is maddening. Obviously, they can hardly read. And so every time he'd get it half-dialed, he, he his finger would slip out of the hole, and it would all start all over again. And then he starts again. Say, well, we're all watching by this time, and I'm losing the thread of my discussion, say, at that point. Well, at, 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 at that point, it happened. The, the payoff to the gag, it was better than you could ever have conceived, the payoff. He is, he is struggling with the phone, and finally, he sits down on that little seat that they got in the phone booth. You know the little seat? He sort of squinches down. He's got the phone. And I don't know whether he ever got the number or not. He just sort of looks glassy-eyed. He's got the phone up to one ear. <laughs> he's looking out at the audience. He's aware that there's somebody out there now. And they're all looking at him. See? <laughs> he looks out. And just at that minute... <laughs> he never lived it down, by the way. This waiter comes out of the of the kitchen. He comes out of the kitchen, and he has the inevitable giant tray. Well, now, the giant tray was covered with pizza and spaghetti. He must have had nine orders of spaghetti with the red tomato sauce, the whole bit, see. He comes out of the door, running like a... He didn't know what was going on. He didn't know there was a guy in the phone book. He comes running out like that, and just as he does so... He stumbles. They had a little door jam there. He stumbles, and I could see the tray going. It was just in slow motion. It was very eerie. In slow motion, he's kind of spinning to his right. Well, immediately, of course, he realizes as he's falling, he's going to fall. He doesn't want this stuff to fly all over the audience, you know, all those people sitting there. 
So without knowing what he's doing, he spins to his right, directly towards the phone booth. He goes, clunk, he hits the phone booth, the booth door opens up, it just goes, slams open, and eight dishes of spaghetti, five pizza pies, four hamburgers, 19 glasses of root beer, all fly in one mass right into... Just in one mass. It was fantastic. Right into the phone booth. Like that. And here's this drunk sitting in there saying, and he didn't move a muscle. He's got spaghetti hanging on his head. The spaghetti is dripping down. He's got hot dogs laying on his kneecaps. He's got he's got red spaghetti sauce dripping off his tie. He looked like a very elegant character, see. Well, the waiter is sitting flat on the floor, looking up. And a, the drunk was too drunk to even comprehend what had happened. All he knew was that a lot of wet stuff hit him. That's all he knows. See. And he, he's, he's sitting there, and everybody is roaring. The entire place breaks up. It's a fantastic scene. See, they're cheering. He doesn't even know what they're cheering at. He just looks out, see, and which made it even funnier, because he just looked out there, you know, just the crowd is cheering and roaring, and guys are, you know, falling off their chairs and knocking over tables and all that stuff. It was a fantastic moment. And at that, he says in a clear voice, he says, well, uh, okay, uh, uh, okay, uh, Eleanor, uh, uh, I'll call you later. He hangs up <laughs> in this elegant, you know, voice. And he gets up and he walks out of the phone booth. You know how drunks always try to pretend like they're not drunk and that nobody is really observing that they're drunk? He walks out of the phone booth. All he knew was that he was bags. He still was not aware that he had spaghetti hanging on his hair. He... <laughs> He had a giant slice of pizza attached to his coat, and it had red spaghetti sauce. He walked out in absolute elegance. He walked through the crowd, so he's staggering along, and he sat down and looked up as though, well, let's get the show going again here. <laughs> oh, man, I can tell you stories about nightclub life you wouldn't believe. Like the time, you know, you always hear about nightclub fights, elegant cafe society fights, you know, Frank Sinatra hits... Uh, uh, George Raft in the mouth kind of thing, see? Oh, I actually saw one of those. And that we'll save that till later. It's a little late, and also I don't like to be sued in the early part of the week. <laughs>